KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. A legal case that stems back to the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School back in 2012 recently was settled. It involves a now bankrupt gun manufacturer, its insurers, and the families of Sandy Hook victims. It was a very interesting settlement, and we wanted to learn more about it and what it could mean, if anything, going forward. So we caught up with Dr. Susan Liebel, professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. Really interesting situation and discussion. Give a listen. Let's just kind of set the table. The lawsuit here that eventually leads to the settlement, this is in response or connected to the tragedy in 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary School. It ends up being a $73 million settlement between Remington, the gun manufacturer who's now bankrupt, its insurers, and the families of five children and four adults who were killed in the tragedy. Kind of Talk us through this case. You know, where does it start and take us to where we got to the settlement point? I think people are really intrigued by this. First, because of the size. The $73 million is the largest settlement we've seen. And second, it's really unusual for any gun manufacturer to be held accountable for a shooting, despite the fact that often, um, you know, you can trace which weapons were used. I'm going to back up just a tiny bit. In the 1990s, there was just a ton of gun violence, record levels, and there was enormous momentum for gun safety laws at that time. So you had lawyers suing manufacturers to hold them accountable for these murders, and this created a financial strain on gun makers. In reaction to all of that legal activity, Congress passes the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and George W. Bush signs it, and it shields gun manufacturers and dealers. And and Bush framed this as like a necessary safeguard to stem frivolous lawsuits, and it helped give the gun industry special protections against most civil cases. But I say most because the law has exceptions. For example, gun manufacturers or dealers, they they could be held accountable if there was a defect in the design of the gun or if there was a breach of contract regarding the, the warranty. But there was also an exception for when the manufacturer knowingly violates a state or federal law related to the sale or marketing of a firearm. Okay, so so this is the backdrop that there's this big national law that is meant to prevent the families in this exact same situation from being able to sue. There was a very, very unusual legal strategy taken, and it's a story of both state law and and federal law. So the families were interested in accountability, not money. They've been very clear about that, and they were clear at their press conference as they announced this settlement. Most lawyers didn't want to touch this. They found a a very interesting lawyer, Joshua Koskoff, his father and grandfather attorneys. He's grown up in a family in which, you know, his dad represented a Black Panther and Joshua saw him in the, uh, you know, in the office. And so this lawyer and his team saw a different approach, which was to use a Connecticut law, the consumer protection law, the unfair trade practices law, 
and that they could somehow use that ex- one exception in the federal law and use this Connecticut state law. And that is how they were able to push this forward, but it never went to trial. This is actually, as you said in your opening, it's it's a settlement with the insurers, not actually with Remington. I mean, they must have had, using that Connecticut law, they must have had some significant leverage there because given the landscape, why would they settle? It's so unusual to see a gun manufacturer held accountable on any level. I would say this was brilliant lawyering. And anybody who looks at this and thinks that this was ordinary should look at the number of people who didn't want to take the case and the number of years that this took. What the lawyers were able to see was that Connecticut tries to stop people like Remington from tricking people and encouraging violent or illegal behavior. And what the lawyers were able to show was that this Bushmaster rifle, the XM-15 E2S, we know these AR-15 style weapons are very, very popular in the United States. This is a usual weapon, not an unusual weapon. And they were able to show that their marketing was switching in the 1990s from this kind of nerdy, like, oh, what's the size of the barrel? You know, what kind of capacity does it have to mass marketing? And this mass marketing had this tone and the the ad that many people have pointed to is one in which it said, consider your man card reissued. And there was actually even some way for, for friends online to revoke each other's man cards. And so what the lawyers were able to do was say, look, you were marketing to the type of people that we know are shooters, somewhere between 88 and 98% of shooters in which genders are known were male identifying people. And they were running not just those ads, but also ads that really echo first person shooter video games. Again, ones that tend to be used by younger male identifying people. And so the slogans, the product placement, they were able to sort of say, you're using these terms on purpose, you're violating this Connecticut law. What you asked about in terms of Remington is so complicated. Remington went bankrupt in 2018, and it partly went bankrupt because it thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. And so it created lots and lots of guns. So when Obama was president, lots of guns were sold because there is this suspicion that a Democratic president will change gun laws, gun sale laws. So lots of guns bought. When Trump became president, Remington was left with all of these guns. They went declared bankruptcy. They they were able to actually sell those guns, but they end up declaring bankruptcy in 2018. Then they came back from it and then they declared bankruptcy again. So as you say, this was not actually a settlement with the company. And many people are saying that if it were a functioning gun company, the gun company would fight and have fought it much harder. Here, there were four insurance companies and the insurers decided to pay out the maximum amount. So it's odd going forward. This is not really a strategy that's open to tons of places. There are only a few states with laws like this. And now some states could pass them, but you would still need the gun company not to fight it. So if this had gone to court, the legal team would have had to have proved that the gun was purchased in reaction to these ads, question mark. 
he didn't buy the gun himself. His mom bought the gun. So would that have become a problem? So by not going to trial, it was a brilliant strategy and they and they were incredibly successful. Is Remington still, they mentioned they went bankrupt twice. Are they still a viable company? They're gone. They were the, one of the oldest gun companies and they were located in Connecticut, ironically. But yes, they, they, they are no longer. Does it say something that really for the first time I can ever remember, there's some sort of accountability in a situation like this that goes beyond just the shooter who did the act? I think what happens going forward here is I don't think you're going to see massive accountability. I want to say that the $73 million wasn't only the most important, I think, part of this. It was that they are also turning over documents. So the settlement will release thousands of pages of internal documents, including possible plans for how to market the weapon. And though Remington didn't admit uh, liability in this, some of these documents are going to be made public. And I think that is going to send something of a chill to other gun companies. And I think what we're going to see, we're already seeing this, this isn't going to change the type of guns that are available. The AR-15 is still incredibly popular, but it is and has already changed how guns are marketed. So now gun companies are moving back to hunting and self-defense instead of buy your masculinity by this, this military sort of style approach. I think we are going to see more lawsuits, more states trying to be get around certain things. But remember, this didn't go to court. And it's not clear that if, it, if this wasn't a bankrupt company, and in a lot of ways, all of the elements were there. The bankrupt company that didn't want to fight back, the insurance companies who wanted to just move it along. So it's a very narrow pathway. I do think that the discovery materials will be really interesting to look at, but gun companies have already reacted to this. They've been watching this like hawks. The NRA has been staggering for the last couple of years with, you know, obviously massive PR problems, but some financial problems, a lot of appearances of impropriety or corruption. Could we be starting to see an ever slight course correction with regards to guns in America. The last couple of years are the first time I really feel like there's been kind of legitimate, like, wow, the, the NRA could really be in some trouble here. Like this doesn't just sound like, you know, pundits pontificating here. And then you have something like this, like you said, kind of a perfect storm, but still some sort of accountability I feel like for the first time, we're kind of seeing this track in a different direction. I, I agree with, with all of that. I, I think that the NRA is powerful because it's able to affect Congress. So we know that a majority of Americans favor some sort of gun safety laws. They've been doing polls over and over again. They have not changed. So we know that it's a majority-supported approach to registering guns, to shutting down loopholes. All of these things are uncontroversial among American voters. Yet, the people elected by the American voters in Congress are reluctant to do this. And as you say, part of this is the NRA, lobbying, threats to cut off money. 
But in the end, this is very, very popular legislation. So we can't lay it all at the feet of the NRA. We have to lay it at the feet of the lawmakers that have not had the courage to move this forward. And I don't know what would change that. I do think we have a narrative that's become very dangerous in the United States. And it's one that associates guns with freedom and guns with patriotism and guns with the kind of liberty that can either go in the direction of one six and the insurrection, which most Americans find distasteful and problematic, but others don't. And another in which you should see some sort of gun regulations, you should see some sort of of change. So I'll, I'll just say, like, I think that that's a really toxic mix. And it's not clear to me that this case changes that in any way. The second thing I think is really important here politically is federalism. You know, we have 50 states, with 50 different laws. And I think what we can see in this case is that because Connecticut has different law from other states, California, it's been introduced. New York has legislation like this. I think New Jersey is thinking about legislation like this. It's the states that can, perhaps, because they're not as beholden to the NRA for their elections, for their support, can make some changes. I still think this would have been really difficult to do in court. So I think this moves the needle, not because we're going to see more successful lawsuits against gun makers. I don't think we are. I I don't think an active non-in-bankruptcy gun maker would have settled in this way. But I do think we're going to see states thinking about their own power in their own laws. And I think we've seen that in relationship to abortion as well on both the left and the right. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.